In the Phaedrus, Plato wrote this about writing, quote, it will create forgetfulness in the learner's souls because they will not use their memories. They will trust to external written characters and not remember of themselves, close quote. From Wyoming Catholic College, this is the After Dinner Scholar, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. It seems almost beyond belief that as we worry about technologies such as artificial intelligence, Plato considered and rejected the new technology of writing things down on paper. It's evidence that for millennia, we humans have been inventing new things and debating about whether or not they are or are not useful or even safe. At the 2023 Wyoming School of Catholic Thought, the college's adult week, Dr. Pavlos Papadopoulos gave us this introduction to our readings from Sophocles, Plato, Aristotle, and Plutarch. The selections for this session are meant to express a particular vision of the relation between science, technology, and politics. We may try to summarize that vision by the phrase classical technological conservatism, or maybe ancient Greek technological conservatism. The first part of this phrase, classical or ancient Greek, uh, seems simple enough. All of our readings are old. They all come from classical antiquity, from Sophocles' great tragic play Antigone from Athens of the 5th century BC, selections from Plato's Phaedrus and Laws, and Aristotle's Ethics and Politics, all written in the 4th century BC, and then a selection from Plutarch's Life of Marcellus. Plutarch, uh, a man living at the turn of the 1st century AD, the 1st to the second, uh, 46 to 11, uh, 119 AD, so end of the 1st century AD, uh, a man writing at that time but recounting the life of a Roman general from the 3rd century BC, um, Marcellus. So all of these are written by Greek authors. Plutarch, though he wrote about Romans as well as Greeks, was himself a Greek living under the Roman Empire and writing in Greek. So it makes sense why I would call these classical or ancient Greek technological conservatism readings. But here we should be careful. It's perfectly true to designate these readings as classical or ancient Greek, but in so doing we should take care not to distance ourselves from them too much. I'm not just saying this because I myself am Greek. I, I, mean, I mean it for all of you as well. We should ask ourselves how other, how alien, how different to our own lives and understanding is the vision of the relation between science, technology, and politics that we find in these readings. As we trace the developments of this vision to visions that we will encounter later in the week, are we surveying various possible approaches to technology that are always in principle open to each and every human society? Or is our grand tour through history a survey of various dispensations from history beyond our own control? A development from one stance towards technology to another with relatively little, if not, or perhaps no human input, no agency on our part, but only the brute fact that we are born in the 21st century AD, at a time of great technological development, rather than the 5th or 4th or 3rd century BC. And thus, we have a merely historical interest in studying the classical vision of science, technology, and politics. Or perhaps is the truth somewhere in between? Are the various approaches to science, technology, and politics 
products of earlier generations' choices that, once those choices have issued in new technologies and social structures, limit any future society to certain possible approaches while shutting the door to others. It is my suspicion that what we can learn from these classical authors is more than just the way things used to be. It's my suspicion that the classics thought through the relation between science, technology, and politics to arrive at principles that are still relevant and legitimate for us today, even if the particular technologies at our disposal today are so different, so much more advanced. Those principles are indicated by the final terms mentioned above, technological conservatism. What would it mean to have a conservative approach to technology? Some of us, the more politically inclined among us, including myself, might immediately start to think of the way we use the term conservative in our regular political discourse. This would be a little bit misleading. What we usually call conservatism is very much a 20th century phenomenon, a phenomenon of a highly advanced technological society, and moreover, in the United States, in the 1950s at least, Conservatism was very quickly bound together with a celebration of the superior dynamism and innovation of free market democratic capitalism, as opposed to the stifling sclerosis of the centralized planned state, socialism or even communist totalitarianism. Which is to say, when we think of conservative, we sometimes think of a radical openness to technological development and an enthusiasm for such innovation, with only marginal cautions around the edges, as it were, where moral concerns might obviously come into play, like stem cell research. I must here quote my favorite line from the Communist Manifesto. Get the, <laughs> start the week off right. <clears throat> all that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned. In this line, Marx and Engels were describing the effects of capitalism on society. But the same might be said of technological innovation. A conservatism that embraces the society transforming effects of te technological development, what some libertarians today call creative destruction, may or may not be to your liking, but is certainly a strange candidate for the term conservative. So here is how the political philosopher Leo Strauss, writing in the late 1950s, describes the conservatism of the classics with regards to technology. Quote, the classics, and he has in mind really the, the kinds of readings we're looking at for today, in some cases the specific readings we're looking at for today, the classics were for almost all practical purposes what are now called conservatives. In contradistinction to many present day conservatives, however, they knew that one cannot be distrustful of political or social change without also being distrustful of technological change. Therefore, they, the classics, did not favor the encouragement of inventions, except perhaps in tyrannies, that is, in regimes the change of which is manifestly desirable. They demanded the strict moral political supervision of inventions. The good and wise city will determine which inventions are to be made use of and which are to be suppressed. Okay, that was Strauss. In this sense, conservative means cautious with respect to technological inventions. A society ought to be cautious in its approach to technology in order to conserve the conditions for the good life, the fully human life of its people. Technology enables us to overcome certain limitations placed upon us, revealing apparent necessities to be merely inconveniences of a less sophisticated condition. 
This very overcoming of limits from the classical perspective is itself dangerous, a near occasion to tyranny, you might say. And the practical difficulties of this overcoming of limits are so great that we must conceive of the realm of technological development as supervised by some higher art, what Aristotle in the Ethics, in our reading for today, calls politics or the political art, politique. And perhaps for the classics, the technological overcoming of limits entails other difficulties as well, not so much practical as theoretical. Plutarch reports in our last reading, Plutarch reports the opinion of Plato that mechanics, including the mechanics that enabled the amazing war machines of Archimedes, is itself a kind of debasement of the purity of mathematics. For the classics then, the conservation of the conditions for the good life might even include the conservation of a certain understanding of philosophy. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I'm now going to give a brief survey of our readings and my experience last night with uh, preparing the Iliad um, and then um, hearing Glenn's talk on it was a really wonderful experience of, wow, you take one book of the Iliad and you could actually talk about probably just that for the whole week. Um, maybe that's not quite the case with every one of these readings, but I find that the more you go into the little details of each of these readings, the more, the more that you see. So I am going to pull out certain details and give you a kind of survey um, I don't mean this to be exhaustive. I want us to sort of, I, I'm going to skip over certain things and I'm going to make certain characterizations that I want you to question later or push back on later. But for now, I'll just give us a tour of, of the readings we have in front of us. So first, we have the so-called Ode to Man from Sophocles' Antigone. <coughs> the chorus, just speaking in this, in this ode, the chorus presents man as the most formidable, Danos, of all things. Man is the most terribly and terrifically capable of all things. We might think of the word awe here and the connection between the awesome and the awful. Man overcomes obstacles, conquers and subdues the earth and its creatures, making deserts bloom for his sustenance, capturing birds and beasts and breaking horses to his will, not just defeating potential predators through strength, as one beast might overpower another, but actually domesticating animals that were once wild, transforming what was savage and thus a threat into something tame and thus a benefit. Speech and thought, the human endowments par excellence, enable man to build cities, sheltering him from the elements and also to build up a storehouse of medical knowledge that progresses from generation to generation, providing an escape from ailments that used to be perplexing to man. All this the chorus presents to us in a tone of delight and terror. And yet there is a limit to human ingenuity, a limit that comes to sight with reference to medical science in particular. Only against death has he at last no refuge. Man who is able to transform the earth into a refuge for himself who is able to transform the animals themselves from savage beasts into beasts of burden, finds a firm limit on his abilities. For all of his godlike prowess and capacity for technological development and transformation of the wild world around him into a world fit for human habitation, man is still mortal. Interestingly, it is here at the very end that the chorus adds a coda to its ode. Man is a moral animal. He ventures once towards evil and then towards good. Man is capable 
of both good and evil. The chorus anticipates blessings and prosperity for the cities of the righteous and predicts destruction for the cities of those who debase themselves through injustice. The connection between this moral coda and the rest of the ode is not made explicit. So here's a couple of suggestions. First, the formidability of man, evident in his technological pro prowess, is also evident in his capacity for moral grandeur as well as moral debasement. Second, second possibility, it seems that our own technological capacity has a moral dimension. Earlier, the chorus said, man is prepared for everything. Against nothing does he want for protection, except, as it goes on to point out, against death. Our impressive abilities with technology, including medicine, are liable to inspire hubristic overconfidence in ourselves. Very briefly, the classical vision of the tyrant, if you look to other Greek tragedies, if you look to Herodotus, the, the great Greek historian, if you even look to Plato, the, the classical vision of the tyrant could be said to be the man who knows no limits, or the man who respects no limits, who violates limits within his own soul, limits between himself and others, limits in the customs of his city, limits between his nation and others, limits between the human and the divine. Our technological prowess, which enables us to overstep so many limits, might tempt us to become tyrannical. Death is the reminder that certain limits cannot be overcome, that man's own will is not ultimately sovereign. Our second reading is from Plato's Phaedrus. Here, Socrates tells an Egyptian story that he claims to have heard from men of former times. There's a strange emphasis on tradition uh, and, and things being old in, in, in this reading. The inventor god, Thuth, approaches the king god, Thamos, to display his arts. This is that term, techne, that, uh, that Glenn pulled out of um, our reading last night. Thuth approaches the king god, Thamos, to display his arts for Thamos' appro approval to distribute to the Egyptians. Note from the start that there is a division between the inventor and the king. And the king god Thamos says explicitly, one person is able to bring forth the things of art and another to judge what allotment of harm and of benefit they have for those who are going to use them. The inventor is not necessarily the best judge of the use of his own inventions. And the judge of the right use is not just anyone, but here it is someone with proper political authority. Why would this be the case? It's not entirely clear. But Thamos adds one reason that the inventor is not always the best judge of his inventions. The inventor has goodwill toward his inventions because he is their father. The inventor loves what he has made as a father loves his son, naturally preferring him to others. He is, as you might say, biased. <laughs> in the case of the final invention discussed in the story, writing, written letters, Thuth the inventor has gotten things exactly backwards. He thought that writing would be a drug for memory and wisdom, but instead, as Thamos informs him, writing will provide forgetfulness in the souls of those who have learned it through neglect of memory, as they will trust in writing and recollect from outside with alien markings rather than reminding themselves from inside by themselves. Thamos says that Thuth has found a drug not for memory but for reminding, and while this might sound like a nice silver lining, hey, at least we'll be reminded of things uh, we might otherwise have remembered. He is unrelenting in his criticism. Quote, you are supplying the opinion of wisdom to students, not truth. For you'll see that having become hearers of much without teaching, 
they will seem to be sensible judges in much, while being for the most part senseless and hard to be with, since they become wise in their own opinion instead of truly wise. Socrates, having finished the narration of this story, the big paragraph on that first page, immediately encounters a confirmation of Thamos's prediction. The other man in the conversation, Phaedrus, sniffs somewhat snobbily at the Egyptian speech that Socrates has related. In response, Socrates thrashes him. He rebukes him for caring about the source of a speech as much as or perhaps more than its truthfulness. This is kind of an odd response. It's, uh, you read through this and you're not expecting Socrates to sort of jump on Phaedrus for kind of trying to make a joke at the end of, <laughs> at the end of this story. Socrates compares Phaedrus to the young men of ancient times who were more docile to the truth because they were simple-minded. Phaedrus is somewhat cowed by this startling chastisement. Only after Phaedrus has become docile again, after he has been made aware that it's possible to be too big for one's sophisticated britches, does Socrates deliver a gentler judgment on writing than Thamos himself did in the story. Thamos had emphasized the bane of forgetfulness that will result from written letters and the plague of wise guys, rather than men possessing genuine wisdom, that will result in a literate society. Socrates restates this judgment by pointing out that written speeches are a limited good. They serve to remind one who knows about the things that the writings are about. Our next reading, if we skip ahead to our next one from Plato's Laws, is also Egyptian. Here, a character named the Athenian Stranger encourages his interlocutors to adopt Egyptian customs in a city that they are founding in order to guard against innovation. He begins by making the surprising claim that the kind of games played by young people is the greatest unknown danger to the preservation of laws in a city. He doesn't claim it's the greatest danger, but only that it's, it's a very great one, a very great danger, and one that's normally overlooked. The innovator destroys the city by encouraging love of novelty in the young. Young children, habituated to ever-changing games and toys, will expect and be delighted by innovations in all manners of life for the rest of their lives. The lawgiver then must think up a device in order to preserve as much as possible whatever good has been handed down in the tradition of laws. The stranger says that the Egyptian, Egyptians have an art for suppressing the youthful desire for novelty and innovation, and that art is the sanctification of all dance and all songs a strict regulation of the liturgical calendar of all songs and sacrifices with religious enforcement of this religious calendar. Because change is only desirable when change is from bad to good, any political order that thinks its customs good will desire their preservation. This is probably Plato's, Plato at his most traditionalist. I don't think you find anywhere else in Plato's work where he sort of beats the drum of innovation is a danger, preserve everything exactly as it is in amber if possible um, than, than this passage. It's really striking if you, if you read Plato more widely. And yet, as Aristotle, I'm now moving on to our next set of readings, and yet as Aristotle points out at the beginning of the ethics, in everything that we do, we seek some good. And in a striking line from the politics, all seek not the traditional, but the good. In the opening chapters of the Ethics, Aristotle establishes a hierarchy of human pursuits. He describes politike, the political art, or politics, as the most authoritative and most architectonic art. Because it, politics, aims at the highest and most comprehensive good, 
the human good or happiness, that which we seek for its own sake rather than as a means to some other good. Aristotle describes the political art as architectonic. This is the word architect that we should be thinking of. Namely, the political art relates to lower arts such as generalship or economics as an architect relates to the carpenter and the mason and the plumber and the laborer and so on. Now, Aristotle does not mean by this that politicians should be politicizing science or that politicians are the arbiters of what is or is not scientifically true. He means instead, first, that whereas other arts aim at other goods, economics aims at general, generating wealth, generalship aims at generating victory on the battlefield, medicine aims at producing health in the body of a patient, politics aims at the good for an entire city, which includes the conditions for the good life or happiness for its citizens. Moreover, Aristotle makes here a very common sense observation. The political art, he says, ordains what sciences there must be in cities and what kinds each person in turn must learn and up to what point. Quite simply, the political art includes lawmaking, and laws are made everywhere regulating the arts, crafts, and sciences. We do this today quite explicitly. Governments mandate the education of the young up to a certain age and up to certain standards. And governments encourage the development of the sciences, in some cases through direct funding, through research grants, support for universities, and the like. Insofar as it is the political art's job to regulate the city, then every city has always already rendered a judgment about the sciences, whether it has done so by commission or omission, by forbidding or permitting or encouraging or requiring some pursuits in the city that are relevant to science. There can be no absolute ne uh, neutrality in the, on this question, Aristotle would say. There can be no absolute neutrality on the relation between science and a political order. Even the stance of neutrality, of being more hands-off, is a statement from the political authorities about what kinds of society they wish to encourage or at least are willing to permit. We now have four chapters from Aristotle's politics. The first two are especially interesting to us because of their reference to the tripods of Hephaestus from Book 18 of the Iliad. As Glenn mentioned last night, Hephaestus the club-footed, Hephaestus the god of technology, seems to associate technology with a kind of recompense in several senses. One of those senses is to make up for his personal disability and ugliness with technological ability and the beauty of his products. Here, Aristotle posits the existence of a category of human beings, the natural slave, who are incapable of self-mastery and independence, and thus by nature subordinate to another and apart rather than wholes unto themselves. Now, whatever you think of his argument or assertion about slavery, we've only read a tiny portion of it here. What I find interesting here is Aristotle's recognition, through his reference to the tripods of Hephaestus, that technology changes not just the conditions of labor, but the need for laborers itself. That masters would no longer have a need for slaves if they had robots, at least in the realm of production. This is, of course, the most obvious positive way that most of us experience technology today. It frees us from certain drudgeries, freeing us for certain leisured activities, at least in principle. Most of us also struggle to make good use of the time that we've won through all of our technological devices. I hasten on to the next excerpt from Aristotle, his discussion of Hippodamus. This is book one, chapter eight, uh, book two, chapter eight. <clears throat> this is one of my favorite passages in all of Aristotle. Because in it, Aristotle, who is the most serious, 
deadpan philosopher you've ever read makes an ad hominem attack on someone for his hairstyle and clothing. Yes. <laughs> it's quite surprising, uh, and we should probably ask why he does it. Um, and I really want to talk about that, but I'm actually going to reserve that for later. I'm not going to talk about that now. But uh, I think it's, a, it's an extremely important detail um, that, he, that he would go out of his way to make fun of someone for the way that he dresses and the way that he looks. It's, it's something that Aristotle does not normally do. So for now, I'll just point out that Aristotle is criticizing Hippodamus for a proposed law. Uh, Hippodamus, he says, and another really important passage was, this is the end of the first paragraph, Hippodamus was the first of those not engaged in politics to undertake to give an account of the best regime. Uh, Hippodamus, <coughs> Hippodamus is being criticized by Aristotle for a proposed law that would encourage innovation in the laws by a system of rewards for citizens who thought up good ways to change the laws. It sounds harmless enough, but Aristotle takes it quite seriously as a threat to good order in a city. While he recognizes the great progress that has been made in the other sciences, such as medicine, and further recognizes that strict traditionalism is ill-conceived, all seek not the traditional but the good, earlier human beings were quite primitive in their customs and laws, Still, Aristotle drives home the point that we cannot approach innovation in our laws and customs in the same way that we approach innovation in the arts, which I would add is a, seems like a temptation of a technologically advanced society, um, especially our own. You look around and you see um, stagnation in so many areas of life and then you see at least apparent progress in technology and science and so a natural reaction for m many of us is to ask the technologists what they know and what they do and think about how how they can uh, make effective progress in politics in in social development um, which the politicians themselves or ordinary citizens seem seem incapable of Indeed, because the whole political order depends in part upon habituation, acquiring certain habits, it may be better to tolerate suboptimal optimal political laws, whereas no one would hesitate to institute improvements in other sciences such as medicine as soon as they are discovered. Here I'll just note that we might wish to compare Socrates' Egyptian speech in Plato's Phaedrus and the Egyptianism of the Athenian stranger in Plato's laws to the criticism of Hippodamus and Aristotle's politics. How near do Plato and Aristotle land to one another in these passages when they're talking about innovation, the arts, and, and technology? Okay, one final excerpt from Aristotle is from Book 7, Chapter 11 of the Politics, about walls and missiles. <coughs> Besides reminding me of Iliad 18 again, the debate between Hector and Polydemus, Polydemos about whether to remain outside the walls of Troy or retreat behind them, this passage is, is an interesting anticipation of our Plutarch excerpt. Here, Aristotle recognizes that developments in offensive military technology, missiles and siege machinery, will actually force a city to develop its own developments in defensive technologies, namely walls. You might also think of like ICBMs and <laughs> Star Wars, <laughs> something like that. <clears throat> Finally, our excerpt from Plutarch's Life of Marcellus in which we hear of the amazing war machines of Archimedes that we still don't know how he made, <laughs> what exactly they were. Historians are sort of uh, at awe in this. Let me point out just a few features of this reading. 
First, while Archimedes appears at the end of the story as a kind of head-in-the-clouds mathematician so wrapped up in his demonstrations that he's unaware that the Romans have captured Syracuse, he is from the start not an isolated individual. The whole story depends upon Archimedes the mathematician being a particular human being living in a particular time and place in a particular and in particular natural relations with his fellow man. He is a citizen of Syracuse and he is a kinsman and friend of King Hero. It is only due to these pre-existing relations of citizenship and of kinship that he comes to build his war machines in the first place. Indeed, it was the king, Hero, who through great efforts persuaded Archimedes, he has to do it a couple of times, persuaded Archimedes to try his hand at mechanics. Initially, it seems, through the argument that this application of philosophy to the needs which make themselves met would render his philosophy or mathematics more evident to the common mind. It initially seems like a kind of um, educational uh, uh, justification for, for creating, creating machines to demonstrate the truth of his propositions. And it is then Archimedes who is emboldened to start making incredible boasts about his mechanical accomplishments. If there was another world, I could go there and move this one if I had a lever big enough. right? These incredible boasts about his mechanical accomplishments, which turn out to be true. Archimedes, in other words, has, for all of his otherworldliness, very human motivations. He is living as a citizen of a specific city. He is related to the king. The king encourages him. He responds to his encouragement. And then he actually seems to give in to a kind of boastfulness, or, or, or boldness, at least, about his abilities. And Hero is clever enough to capitalize on these very human motivations of Archimedes to enlist him in the construction of great war machines that are later used in the defense of Syracuse. The Romans, who are besieging Syracuse, feel that they are fighting against the gods. And Marcellus refers to Archimedes as a geometrical briarius, who outdoes the hundred-handed monsters of mythology. Plutarch himself comments that all the rest of the Syracusans were but a body for the designs of Archimedes. And his, Archimedes's, the one soul moving and managing everything. So Archimedes is sitting within the city. He is like the soul of the city. And he has 100 hands, or more than 100 hands. He has thousands of arms, each of which are the individual Syracusans who are executing his designs by, by pulling on a rope or switching a lever or something like that. These are impressive statements. But what comes next is just as important. Plutarch notes, for all other weapons lay idle. And his alone, Archimedes' alone, were then employed by the city both in offense and defense. The Syracusans, in other words, become complacent in relying on Archimedes' war machines. A society may find it useful to develop advanced military technology, but the feeling of invincibility granted them by that advancement might encourage laxness and even vice in them. When Marcellus finally captures the city, which he does through his own use of mathematics, through an estimation of the height of a certain tower in the walls of the city. It's almost as if he like looks at it and eyeballs it, which is very funny in contrast to the extreme precision of Archimedes that has sort of emphasized throughout the story. So when Marcellus finally captured the city, the Syracusans are celebrating a religious festival and have given themselves over to wine and sport, the sort of excess that they feel able to give into because they can trust Archimedes' machines that have made them invincible. 
So the common Syracusans are oblivious to the capture of their city because of their drunkenness and revelry. And the most refined Syracusan, Archimedes, is oblivious to the capture of his city because he is intoxicated by pure mathematics. <laughs> Strange parallel. The other great theme in this reading is the contrast between pure mathematics and mechanics. Plutarch credits Plato with exiling mechanics, or applied mathematics, from the vocation of the philosopher, consigning it to the low status of a merely military art. It's something that responds to necessity, responds to need, and therefore is not liberal and free in the, in the, in the way that um, speculative mathematics is. Plutarch praises Archimedes for the lofty spirit and profound soul, evidenced by his refusal to leave behind a treatise explaining how in the world he made such terrific, terrible war machines. And Plutarch praises Archimedes because he, quote, regarded the work of an engineer and every art that ministers to the needs of life as ignoble and vulgar, and thus devoted his earnest efforts only to those studies, the subtlety and charm of which are not affected by the claims of necessity. It's a bit of a shocking perspective for us who are used to being told that we're supposed to make a difference in the world, uh, who are used to justifying scientific studies by their potential to relieve the burdens of life, rolling back the limitations placed on us by necessity. Okay, I will end by returning to the quote from Leo Strauss that I gave near the beginning. He had been saying that the classics demanded the strict moral political supervision of inventions, the good and wise city, Strauss said, according to the classics, the good and wise city will determine which inventions are to be made use of and which are to be suppressed. But he goes on to add the following. Yet the classics were forced to make one crucial exception. They had to admit the necessity of encouraging inventions pertaining to the art of war. They had to bow to the necessity of defense or of resistance. This means, however, that they had to admit that the moral political supervision of inventions by the good and wise city is necessarily limited by the need of adaptation to the practices of morally inferior cities, which scorn such supervision because their end is acquisition or ease. These other cities that are not regulating their technological developments with a view to uh, the virtue and happiness of their, of their citizens are instead uh, developing technology in a way that will uh, allow them to acquire or to uh, rest more easily. And this has a kind of ripple effect even on the cities that want to be intentional in their supervision of technology. The classics had to admit, in other words, that in an important respect, the good city has to take its bearings by the practice of bad cities, or that the bad impose their law on the good. In his play Antigone, Sophocles wrote, quote, there are many marvelous things, yet none more so than man. Close quote. But according to Greek mythology, humans weren't always that way. In fact, humans were pathetic. It took one of the gods, Prometheus, to teach us the skills we needed and to give us fire. And for that, Prometheus paid a very high price, as we'll see in next week's After Dinner Scholar podcast. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.